Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence MacDonald. My guest today is Jessica Seddon. Jessica is the Director of Integrated Urban Strategy at the WRI Ross Center for Sustainable Cities and leading a new initiative here at WRI on air pollution. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you. I want to start out by asking you, you've done a lot of things. You've worked at the intersection of science and policy, starting in your time at UC San Diego. You spent 10 years in India. What, in your experience, led you to become passionate about air pollution? Well, I think it all started off at UCSD when I was speaking with one of my colleagues about his research. And he was working at Scripps and looking at the climate impacts of aerosols, or small particles in the air. And I could not believe that I had not heard of this. I fancied myself somebody who was kind of up to date on environmental issues. But I had not heard about the links between air pollution and climate that were at that time emerging and becoming more scientifically agreed upon. So I started to follow up with him to to look at the political economy of the issue and how we might work together to bring some of what was emerging in the scientific literature more into public awareness and also to try to identify ways that we could expand action on what at the time, and I think is still now, a very important opportunity for mitigating climate change as well as addressing human health impacts. How did you get from there to India? How did I get from there to India? You took a well, plane. The, no. I did. I took well, a what plane. Was the, what was the intellectual journey that brought you to India, and what's it got to do with air pollution? Well, I had actually started working on India when I was in graduate school. I'm a social scientist, a game theorist by training, and some of what I was doing in my dissertation was related to Indian infrastructure policy and regulatory changes that were happening in the early 2000s. So I started off my career from graduate school and throughout being an academic, working with different parts of the Indian government on policy decisions around infrastructure, energy, transport, etc. That led me to take a sabbatical in India, again, continuing to work on infrastructure, which led me one year sabbatical, ended up leading to a 10-year stay, along the way looking at both pollution and environmental change as a phenomenon, but more importantly at some of the drivers at the infrastructure and social policies that were associated with one path or another. So you breathed for 10 years what we now know is perhaps the most polluted air on earth, worse even No, no. I lived in Chennai. I specifically chose to live in South India and on the coast in South India where the air is quite different than the Indo-Gangetic plain. Nonetheless, the health impacts of pollution in India, Beijing, around the world are quite severe and have attracted a lot of attention. Can you talk about that? I know that Part of your view is it's not only health, but health is the way that people often come into it first. So I think the fact that the health impacts of air pollution have been in the headlines is a great thing. I think the fact it's very hard to argue with something that is the leading environmental risk that's responsible for more than 7 million deaths annually worldwide and is highly visible. But I think it's also very important to look at the impacts of air pollution beyond health. Very few people know that air pollution is also responsible for double-digit losses in crop yields. One of the estimates associated with global ozone, for example, is 15% of wheat, soy, and staple crops like rice, and that's higher in some parts of India. That's a big food security impact that is not well recognized and I think should also be in the headlines along with health. There are other impacts on renewable energy production. It can cut renewable energy by a third, yields by a third. It also 
as we all know and is increasingly visible, air pollution has a strong warming climate impact. So I'm persuaded it's a big problem. I'm persuaded that your background in the political economy of policy makes you a good person to tackle it. Why did you choose to come here? I mean, WRI is very well known for working on climate, for our work on water, for our work on forests, um, energy. Some people are going to look at WRI and say, you guys haven't been working on air pollution. What do you say to that? I think I would say that much of our work in the past we haven't spoken about as working on air pollution, but it has been work on emissions reduction. And I think one of the reasons that I came to WRI was because of its ability through the international offices and the network of deeply embedded, very locally savvy, very uh, long-lasting relationships that WRI has built with business, government, and the scientific communities is exactly the recipe that we need for the kind of sustained attention that it's going to take to reduce emissions. That leads me very nicely into this Pathways for Change. It's a five-element cycle um, that you're using, I gather, as your main analytical tool for how to achieve action on air pollution. Many, many, many people are trying to get action to bring down air pollution. So um, I want you to tell me why you think that this cycle as an analytical tool can be useful, and then I'm going to ask you to quickly walk us through each of the elements. Sure. So one of the things that I always used to like to say and still do say is that air pollution is one of the world's most complex, simple-looking problems. When I first encountered air pollution as a uh, contributor to climate change as well as health, I thought, aha, how could, how could there not be more action? This is something where a big piece of air pollution is visible. It has a big impact where people really care, health as well as the climate part. And we have the technologies. It's not that expensive to mitigate. What on earth is going wrong? This is ridiculous. People just need to know. And that was my first impression. But then when I started to look more closely at the success cases, at the places where air had been cleaned up, where high levels of pollution in Mexico City, in Los Angeles, in London, elsewhere had been cleaned up, I started to see that it actually took a far more concerted and a slightly more circuitous political route to being able to identify the problem, spread broad awareness of it, but also convert a demand for clean air into practical, effective, political demand for the solutions that lead to clean air. So you've neatly summarized the cycle. I'm not sure I understand why understanding it is important to having effective action. I think there are a couple of stumbling blocks that come up when you look at the politics of both success and of failure. There are three in particular that stand out. So first of all, awareness is often not enough to mobilize the political demand that it takes to overcome very narrowly concentrated interests that face great cost in reducing emissions. So the benefits of improving air quality accrue to many. The costs of doing so are often concentrated on particular industries or groups that have a lot of political leverage. So overcoming that requires attention to building the entrepreneurial politics to drive a change that benefits many at the cost of a few that have to change their ways. So that's one stumbling block that, that is a little subtle and isn't always obvious. The second big stumbling block is that knowing what's in your air or knowing 
that your air quality is poor does not mean that you know what's causing it. So a demand for clean air is a little bit like demanding equality without knowing exactly how to get there. And those kinds of vague demands don't often translate well into policy agendas and action. So we need to be able to convert in broad public awareness the sense of my air is bad to a knowledge of why is it bad and what are the actions that I need to be pushing for. And that stumbling block is, is, is an important one that's part of this cycle. The third piece that I think makes air quality and air pollution a little bit more of a complex problem to tackle is that getting to cleaner air requires a transition to new ways of heating, cooking, lighting, moving around, producing things. It requires new, new modes of, of agriculture, new ways of applying fertilizer. The actions that produce emissions are deeply embedded in everyday life, markets, and production. It's not like people wake up and said, I'm going to shorten lives and kill children and damage the climate today. They're, they're doing what they need to do to live their lives, and we need to think about the transition to clean air as a sustained implementation, which is very different than a single change the policy. And recognizing that one part of the five-part cycle is to separate out the policy from the implementation and to acknowledge that both are important. And getting over that last stumbling block, the fact that it's a transition, requires paying much more attention to implementation than we typically do. It's such a succinct summary. The one that resonated with me was sort of knowing where it's coming from, if you will, the source attribution. When I was in India last year, the government had announced a ban on the burning of crop remains, stubble, I guess. And the farmers were up at arms, said, we've been burning this stuff forever. We're not the problem. There was a big debate going on as to whether or not this was an appropriate measure. So this is the kind of problem that can arise politically, I guess. It can, and I think the, what the scientific evidence is pointing out is that for part of the year, crop burning is the problem. For another part of the year, it's transport and, and uh, cooking with biomass and other sources, and in the background, there's trash burning and construction dust and industrial activity. So being able to channel all of the energy and the demand for clean air into a constructive multi-sector strategy requires some degree of recognized consensus on what are the elements of that strategy. And it also requires people to understand that what causes pollution in the fall may be very different than what causes pollution in the spring. Because this inconsistency and in some, some of the complexity of source attribution is often misused politically. Because it's very easy to say, well, study number one says that cars are the problem. Study number two says farmers are the problem. Study number three says it's all associated with trash burning. So as a policymaker, what do you do? And as the automobile industry, or as the municipal corporation in charge of managing waste, or as the Farmers Association, it's always easy to use the difference between those three studies to point fingers at each other and avoid doing anything. The fact is that those three studies are perfectly consistent with each other. It just happens over different seasons, and that is a very difficult piece to explain. I'm going to ask you to step through your five-point cycle in sort of a lightning round of definitions so that people can, when we get to the last one, I want them to, our listeners to still be holding in their head the first one. I'm going to tell you what it says here in your chart. You're going to tell me what it is, and then we're going to go to the next one. You ready sure. for a lightning round? Build awareness. 
Building the awareness that air pollution is damaging for health, crops, and any other aspects that people care about. That's easy. Organized demand is the second step. Organizing demand is taking that awareness and helping and using it to help build social capital and collective action that can drive policy change. Great. Focus on sources. Focusing on sources is the movement from demanding clean air to demanding actions that produce clean air where and when you want it. This is, goes to the problem you've been mentioning about benefits are widely distributed, the costs are highly localized and highly concentrated. Yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges for the organizing demand, is how to get uh, lots of people who care a little bit to form a voice that matters a lot in politics. Number four, update policy and planning. So updating policy and planning require is recognizing that certain activities need to change, that new investments in transport need to be made, that new investments in different forms of energy need to be made, and that the laws setting those targets and enabling public investment to flow need to be updated. And lastly, enforcing and adopting solutions. That says it all. It's, it's enforcement <laughs> and it's implementation and it's actually ensuring that the goals, the Clean Air Act that exist in many countries around the world, are enforced and acted upon and that violators are found and punished. Well, thank you. I want to change gears for a minute and talk about something related that I've seen you present to our board, which captured my imagination. And this is the idea that, of course, air doesn't stay still. It moves across um, air sheds, I guess you call them. It moves from place to place. And a lot of that can be tracked with satellites. But in addition, there are these now quite inexpensive local monitors that people can order on the internet and stick anywhere they want and send off uh, information. Is there an idea to bring together the satellite data and the local data into some kind of a global map that would enable people to say how the air is getting polluted? I think that, that so that, that question has several, has several pieces to it. So the first answer is that I think that the expansion of the low-cost sensors and, the, and more importantly, the engagement of new groups in monitoring has been an incredibly powerful force for building awareness and building the kind of energy that we rarely see for any environmental topic. So I think it's great for the awareness part of it. Now, being able to do more than build awareness and for the rest of the cycle requires looking at those sensors as part of a larger research and scientific inquiry. And that's where the combination of satellites and ground sensors can lead to more accurate recognition and understanding of ground level concentrations of pollution being able to move from knowledge of those concentrations of pollution, how bad is the air here and now, to what is causing it, requires additional investments in emissions inventories, in a different type of monitor that's also fairly low cost, but not as often used outside of academia, which is chemical sampling or passive sampling to determine air chemistry, and also modeling. And those three pieces, the modeling and the emissions inventory, in addition to the monitoring, are extremely important pieces of the recipe for moving from how bad is my air to what's causing it. You said that one of the things that drew you to WRI is our network of international offices. And for those who may not know WRI well, we have substantial numbers of experts and staff in India, Indonesia, China, Brazil, Mexico, in Addis Ababa, 
got a, a regional hub in, in Europe. In each of these big economies, we have people working on uh, climate, water, um, cities, um, a number of things that you've mentioned are tied into air pollution, but not specifically on air pollution per se. So in leading this initiative, what's sort of the next thing that you do? I mean, how do you connect with staff in those offices? Could you maybe pick a country and describe sort of how we take it from this quite elegant five-step um, cycle for change to actual activities that people could be doing today in Jakarta or Delhi or Beijing? Mm -hmm. Well, I think point number one is that our international offices have a long history of reducing emissions. So the work on energy, the work on transport emission reduction, that's still all happening. And I would count that as an important and continuing area of air quality work. And I think along with the work that our offices are doing on, say, sustainable transport in Brazil or in um, the India's renewable transition to renewable energy, Along with that, what we're trying to build in the international offices is the knowledge of the science and policy of air quality management. And we've made a couple of great hires in the past few months. We have Walter de Figueiredo in Brazil. We have Beatriz Cardenas, who until about a month ago was the head of air quality management for Mexico City on our Mexico City team. Um, we have Ajay Nagpur and Bhave Sharma in India, both of whom come with both a science and an implementation of air quality management background. So that's the first thing, is being able to move from a team that's very good at emissions reduction to a team that has more experience in air quality management. And I think where we'd like to go next with this is to be able to take this cycle and to be able to look at what in each country are some of the particular institutional levers that we as WRI and with partners have a shot at helping to, to influence and move in service of stronger clean air action. So it's, that's probably the next step for us. In closing, I want you to can invite you to crawl out on a limb here. If WRI and many others working on this are effective, what kind of trajectory do you see for achieving acceptable air quality? If we take acceptable air quality as, say, the, the UN standard, which is, you know, some of us would think that that's still probably high, is this something that we would see in our lifetime, in our children's lifetime? Can they have, is there a history of very rapid improvement? Could we look for better air, air in five years? Is that too much to hope for? So I think uh, the, the gap between five years and, and our children's lifetime is quite large. <laughs> I would say that it's, but the, I think the good news is that we are likely to see, we could see substantially better air in the in a decade, if we are able to create a stronger link between recognition of the the deeper transition required and the political economy of that transition, and being able to match the evidence that we're gathering and the science we're creating in a much more targeted way to accelerating that political economy cycle. I think the single biggest thing holding us back is not knowledge, not general somebody has the knowledge of what to do, but how the knowledge of what to do fits into the political economy of particular places and regions. And if we can make that match between what we know and how we act as a society more effectively, I do think we can see much cleaner air in, in a decade. Now, you know, that's a tough 
change for us to make as a society. So let me hedge that and say within our lifetime and certainly within our children's lifetime. But I also think that it's that getting down to the WHO standards is not going to be possible. That we'll see much cleaner, but not down to the WHO standards. There are so many contributors to pollution and particulate matter that in, in any concentration of people moving around, scuffing, leaves falling, leaves breaking up, it's very hard to actually achieve those standards when you have densely concentrated groups of people. And that, that just may be an urban reality. So I think in short, my answer is we can get better soon if we do better at the link between science and policy. We may not meet, meet WHO standards, but we'll get pretty close. Thank you very much, Jessica. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I always learn a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Lawrence. This has been the World Resources Institute podcast. My guest today, Jessica Seddon, she is the uh, Urban Sustainability Director at the WRI Ross Center for Sustainable Cities. You can learn more about her work at WRI.org. I hope you'll tune in for our next podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else you get your podcast. Until next time, I'm Lawrence McDonald. Thanks for listening. <laughs>